The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, EDU edition, where we're going to focus on one topic uh, in detail this show. This is an offshoot topic from our recent show where we talked about uh, common mistakes or concerns with how people use powers of attorney forms. Um, and uh, those POA forms went through that recently. If you missed that, uh, you might want to listen to that show before this one. This one's an offshoot because during that show, we talked a little bit about the importance of granting people um, granting an agent the power to gift or and or change beneficiaries on your behalf if you became incapacitated. Uh, if you can trust that person and they are either um, sharp enough to do the figuring themselves or they employ some assistance to make these determinations, there can be some gifting and beneficiary changes um, that can be beneficial prior to your passing. Because once you pass away, the, there are certain things that happen that that uh, um, your those receiving your assets afterwards might have preferred you do it a different way. <laughs> we'll say I'll, I'll keep it general like that at this point. So Jim's going to come in and uh, kind of share his thoughts on that, and I'll chime in when appropriate. But uh, it was he, he mentioned it briefly, and he talked about we should get into this deeper another time, and that other time is today apparently. So Jim, I think this will be a good topic for people because I think we're going to touch on a few things that don't get discussed very frequently in uh, financial advice shows like ourselves. Yes, I I think this is going to be a good EDU Mm -hmm. show. EDU stands for education, folks. And what we try to do on an EDU show is dive deeper down and give you some education on on certain things. And the idea came to me uh, with the last EDU show, as Chris said, when we were talking about POAs, power of attorney forms. And we were referencing an article from an attorney, and she had said one of the issues is not adequate gifting powers in a power of attorney. And listen to the previous show. We're not going to get deep into it today. But I shared briefly that there are times, especially for deathbed planning, where being able to gift assets, certain assets, from someone who's about to pass 
to someone else could save tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes, depending on the person's situation. But without adequately giving the ability to gift specifically to the agent in a POA, many custodians will not allow, I would say not many, I would go so far as to say all custodians probably will not allow the gift to happen. So that's what we were trying to cover on last week's show on POAs. But today we want to get into some of the spots where deathbed planning can actually come in handy. And to get a full assessment of this, we have to have an understanding of what everyone calls step-up-in basis. And people seem to know what step-up-in basis is, but what people don't pay attention to is Wall Street giveth and Wall Street taketh away. It is possible, folks, you could die with a loss. And now you're going to be faced with what we admittingly don't talk about nearly enough on the show, a step down in basis (laughs) and how bad that is. In a perfect world, you do-it-yourselfers, you Vanguardian VGs out there, you Vanguard engineer, Excel spreadsheet type folk, y'all hate taxes. I get it. We all pay our quote-unquote fair share. But it seems that uh, most people listening to this podcast, you're probably being asked to pay far more fair share than a lot of other people. So you truly do want to pay your fair share. But remember, we preach this constantly. When you're doing tax planning, I always add, well, I don't meet with clients much anymore, but I hound my staff to ask, who are we planning for? My firm plans as a team. We plan every Tuesday, soon to be every Tuesday and Thursday. We don't meet with clients on those days. And when someone brings up a tax planning case and we're all putting our collective wisdom together, what am I always asking, Chris? Who are we planning for? Who are we planning for? What's the tax number? What are we doing here? Who are we planning for? Two of you, one of you, none of you. And that's what we're getting at today. Deathbed planning isn't really going to help you. You're dead. But it's going to help the one or the zero. That's the concept I came up with called the tax ordering number. 210, your 210 tax ordering number. Are we planning for two of you, one of you, or none of you? Now, when we're planning for a couple, that's very important. But deathbed planning is about planning for the one and the zero. And if there's no two, like in my case, there's no two, my deathbed planning will be about planning for the zero. Zero being beneficiaries. So keep that in mind, all you Vanguard BGs. You go to great length to lower your taxes while you're alive as a couple. Today, we're going to look at tax strategies, not necessarily strategies that you can employ today, Although there are some things you can do today, get a power of attorney form that's going to allow some of these things to be done. Because if you're incapacitated and on your deathbed and cannot make legal decisions or you're in a coma, how are these things going to get done? So today you can do the POA 
And if I have time, depends if Chris goes on and on and on, you know how he gets folks. If I have time uh, at the end, I'll talk about a, a trust that could make a lot of this easier as well. Uh, although this caveats with that trust. Anyways, let's start talking openly about maximizing the step up in basis, which is what everybody wants to do. And minimizing the step down in basis because nobody talks about the fact that Wall Street can taketh away. And some of the things that you leave to people at your death will have lost value. None of what we're going to talk about has a damn thing to do with an IRA at all. These are non-IRA assets. You can't gift your IRA to someone. You can change a beneficiary on it. And we talked about that briefly on the POA show. You have to make sure your POA specifically allows your agent to change beneficiaries as well. Giving gifting powers to a beneficiary does not allow, excuse me, giving gifting powers to an agent in a POA does not allow that agent to change your beneficiary forms. These are all conversations you should be having with your estate planning attorney. Okay. This is also mostly about income tax planning, not estate tax planning. Granted, there are a handful of states out there. I think it's 11, I forget, Chris knows, uh, that have in a state estate tax with very, very low minimums before the state estate tax kicks in. But at the federal level, most people right now, not most people, everybody at the federal level is going to have a 13 or so million dollar exemption as an individual, 26 million exemption as a married couple. Few people listening to this podcast probably have individually or as a couple more than that value today. If you were to die, you might have it more in the future, but right now today. So for the vast majority of people, a state, federal estate taxes won't apply. So Chris and I are going to be reviewing concepts that apply mostly to income tax planning or capital gains tax planning. So far, so good, Chris, or did I? Yeah, uh, no. Okay. I think that's a good setup. All right. So let's start by reviewing the step up in basis because you need to know the step up in basis to understand the step down in basis. And the difference between leaving something that lost value at death or much more preferably during your life on your deathbed, literally. Okay, the step up in basis essentially says if someone dies and they have an asset that has gone up in value on the date of their death, all the unrealized gains Unrealized gain, folks, if you don't understand it, it means gain that has not been sold. You still own the asset. It's just worth more than when you bought it. You don't literally get it in hand until you sell it. It's just, it's also known as paper gain or paper loss. So all the gain, all the paper gain is wiped out at your death in the sense Let's just say you bought something for $100,000 and 20 years later, it's worth half a million dollars and you die. There's $400,000 of gain. If you died on a Monday, excuse that's a bad day to say. If you died on a Wednesday, 
But on Monday, you looked and thought, wow, I've got $500,000 here. I'm going to sell this and do something with it. I don't know what. So you sold on Monday $500,000. That money would appear in your account most likely on Tuesday. It's mostly T plus one now. So on Tuesday, you now have $500,000. The original $100,000 you put in 20 years ago and $400,000 of gain. And on Wednesday, you died. Your estate will have to pay taxes on that $400,000 of gain because you sold it literally the day before you died. Well, a day and a half or so before you died. But if you... Never sold on Monday, skip Tuesday because T plus one doesn't count. Now it's Wednesday and you're sitting around thinking, gee, I think I might sell this and go do something with it. And during that thought process, you had a heart attack and died. And now that asset, not an IRA asset, but a brokerage account asset or a separate investment asset passed to your daughter. What is the daughter's tax implication if she sold it for half a million dollars? That's a question to you, Chris, to take over. Oh, I thought that was a, you were posing a question to our listeners. Right, but no, it's technically to you, so I can take a drink. (laughs) Not of alcohol, folks. I want to make that perfectly clear. It's Friday afternoon. No, no, no. I I tell everyone I'm drinking. I am drinking bubbly, sparkling water, cherry flavored. Oh. Festive. I just want, I so, want a sip of bubbly. So you are gifting it to your daughter or you passed away and your daughter got it? I wasn't. This is part of that 12% of the oh, time. You, this is the 12% of the time you don't yeah. listen to me. I listened to most of what you said, but right at the end, I thought you were posing a <laughs> somebody, hypothetical. <laughs> no, somebody bought something 20 years ago for $100,000. Yeah, right. It rose to $500,000. Mm-hmm. Yep. They died and the daughter inherited it. Right. What is the tax implication to the yeah. daughter if she could literally sell it for $500,000, the value of it right. on the day you died? Right. So at that point, the daughter would have no tax implications because when she sold it, she would be selling it with a cost basis equal to the value of that investment uh, on the day of death. That's the step up. And so only if that rose before she sold it, which she sold it immediately, probably wouldn't change in value. So she'd be selling it at the cost basis. So there's no realized gain nor no realized loss. And it's a wash, so there's no tax implications there. So zero taxes in a scenario like Jim just described so hopefully you got a nice big swig of your bubbly water i did so you have the gentleman sells it two days before he dies and his estate is going to be walloped with a four hundred thousand dollar capital gain subject to taxes but if he never sold it and then he dies just two days later his daughter gets it 100 percent tax free so step up in basis folks is very valuable and people recognize that and like to get step up in basis is, is, I don't think that's a correct word, but you get the point. Okay, maybe I did have a special type of bubbly and not bubbly bubbly, but I'm just joking. It was legitimate non-alcoholic water here. Okay, a couple of things before we go on. Income with respect to a decedent never gets a step up in basis. Right. IRD, 
will never get a step up in basis. So what is IID? It is income that you earned and it should be taxed as income to you, but you died before physically receiving it and paying taxes on it. Hence, income with respect to a decedent, IID. The biggest form of IID, without a doubt, and this is going to go over to you, Chris, is what? Retirement accounts like IRAs, 401ks, etc. Because that money that went in there in a traditional version of those accounts, no income tax was ever paid. The income was deferred. So it's a big bowl of income in there that you might invest in various things along the way. But the IRS sees it as a big tub of income of IRD specifically that when it leaves that account will have to be recognized as income, not as a gain or a loss, but as income when it comes out. And then the tax implications is appropriate for that income. Right. Absolutely. IRAs, 401ks, 457s, 403bs, the whole nine yards. Those are all the biggest source of income with respect to a decedent. It's what we call in the office, always taxable accounts. And it's always taxable, no matter who takes it out, unless it's a charity or the government. The government doesn't pay income taxes on money that they took from you as income taxes. And if a charity gets it, at least on the current laws, charities don't have to pay any tax on it either. But any human who touches or takes money from that IRA or 401k or 403b, whatever it may be, will always have to pay income tax, IID. Uh, Same thing with unpaid interest. Keep that in mind. Unpaid interest. So if you've got a lot of doubly bonds or things like that at your death, all that embedded interest will be taxable, either on your final tax return or I think there's a special election on doubly bonds that you can uh, pass it on, I, I think, I forget, I don't want to get too down that rabbit hole, but unearned interest will not get a step up in basis. And another big one, although we don't talk about it too much, we have to get questions on it. NUA, net unrealized appreciation. NUA will never get a step up in basis. The actual NUA stock itself won't get a step up in basis, but another discussion for another day. Okay, it's very important to understand IRAs, 401ks, none of this applies to. The only other critical thing that I want to point out to make sure everyone also knows, because the IRS finally came out this year, not too long ago, as a matter of fact, I think about three months ago, and put a stop to this nonsense. And it has to do, Chris, with your favorite acronym in the financial services industry. What is that? Your favorite acronym. You know, we have all sorts of acronyms. This like IRMA. This one is your favorite. Do you remember what your favorite is? I think you have me stumped. Um, Not when I give you the answer. Your favorite acronym. Uh, What is it? Idget. That's my favorite. Idget. You've said many a times, I love IDGIT. IDGIT's my favorite acronym. Intentionally Defective Grantor Trust. IDGITS. Well, so you have a better I... memory than I give you credit for because we haven't <laughs> talked about IDGIT in years. 
Oh, uh, no, we mentioned it I guess it's possible we'll, we'll back then. I, I'm sure that wasn't Pete's favorite. I don't think that's my no, favorite. No, no, it was your favorite. It's a pretty it's, good one. But, see, it is a good one. Okay. It's your favorite. Idiots, intentionally effective grantor trusts. With this, this aim, this idea, folks, that you would be able to put assets in this trust and they would be considered out of your estate for estate tax purposes, because that's very important, but considered in your estate for income tax purposes. Now, grantor trusts can do some of these things, but the thought was, if you are paying income taxes on them, you will also be eligible for a step up in basis. You're going to have your cake and eat it too. Because the only way an asset can receive a step up in basis is to be included in your estate. So I said items of IRD never get a step up in basis. But a irrevocable trust, not a revocable trust. Don't panic if you have a revocable trust, folks. An irrevocable trust those assets will not be included in your estate. So they also will not get a step up in basis at your passing. So we're not going into irrevocable trust because few people create them, except more wealthy people. They'll create them, and they were told, you can have your cake and eat it too. We'll create an idiot, an intentionally defective grantor trust. We will make the income from the trust taxable to you. And you might be wondering, why the hell would I want to do that? People who opened idiots, folks, were trying to get money out of their estate because they were worried about being subject to federal estate tax or state estate tax, which is much lower exemption amount. So they put money in an idiot. However, Chris, estate, uh, excuse me, trusts, are very ineffective in taxation, folks. They have compressed tax brackets and they start paying the highest level of capital gains or income taxes after just about $14,000 of, of earnings inside the trust. You don't want to put millions of dollars in an idiot and all of a sudden have the, the trust have to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on taxes. It's much better to have the individual who funded the idiot, the individual who's trying to get money out of his or her estate to avoid estate taxes, get them to pay the taxes because it'll be at much lower levels, significantly lower levels. Why? You have to earn over half a million dollars or, or even more, I forget what it is, to be subject to the highest income tax bracket. Your trust, just $14,000 or so. So the idea was, let me put all this money in an idiot. It's out of my estate and all growth after I put it in is out of my estate and I don't have to pay estate taxes on it. But I want to pay the ongoing taxes on it while I'm alive because the trust is going to get nailed with compressed trust tax rates. And the other advantage to having you pay the taxes was it lowers your estate even more. If the trust is paying your the, the taxes, 
not you. Your estate is going to continue to grow by the amount of taxes that's owed. People who open idgits, folks, we're talking tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. I'm just trying to explain to you a cute little thing that got shot dead, squished like a bug just a few months ago. There were attorneys pushing this, Chris, saying, you can open this idiot. It'll be out of your estate for estate tax purposes. Now, I just told you, if something is out of your estate for estate tax purposes, it does not get a step up in basis. It must be in your estate. But it's out of your estate. But because of the way that these trusts were made intentionally defective, hence the name intentionally defective grantor trust or idiot, it would be taxable to you as well. And the theory was subject and eligible for a step up in basis as well. It was a win-win-win for everyone but the government. Out of your estate for estate taxes, taxed to an individual and avoid the trust compressed tax rates. And at death of that individual, eligible to receive a 100% step up in basis so your beneficiaries could sell it tax-free. Sound pretty good, Chris? Sounds pretty good for the people who can pull it off. (laughs) Well, no one can. They killed that. And they came out and said, absolutely, positively, they being the IRS, no. If it's out of your estate, even in an idiot, it will not get a step up in basis. So it's got to be in your estate. Okay, keep all of this in mind. So here we have joint tenants. How is this going to work? If you understand how the step up works good you'll understand why it works bad and and be able to make gifts on your deathbed comes in handy. Let's just say you have a joint account. It is assumed when a husband and wife have a joint account, 50-50 ownership, irrespective of if all the money came in from one spouse or the other. It's just assumed each spouse owns it. 50%. Now, before I go any further, you often run into situations, or we do, Chris, I'm sure you've seen this uh, many times, that a parent, or usually an elderly parent, will name a child on an account so that child can help them manage it, correct? You've seen that before? Yes, certainly. Okay. One thing to keep in mind, even though it is assumed a married couple owns everything 50-50. If you have grandma, and let's just say she has a $100,000 brokerage account at Vanguard, for all you Vanguardians, she has a $100,000 brokerage account at Vanguard, and she names her daughter on the account. She makes her daughter a joint owner. So the daughter can help the mom manage the money, maybe make some trades, even take some distributions and pay some bills for the mother. I'm not talking a bank account here. This is done also on a bank account. But bank accounts don't really have any growth in them. It's a bank account. It's got dollars in them. There's no step up in basis on dollars. So in a brokerage account, again, grandma put the daughter on and there's 100000 could be 500000 could be a million in it doesn't matter. Let's just say also that 
there's a hundred thousand is my ex- initial example, and only thirty thousand came from grandma. There's seventy thousand of gain in there. She names the daughter to help her, and the daughter has been taking some money out of the account on behalf of the grandma and helping the grandma. And then grandma dies. Is there a step up in basis? Is it treated 50-50? When it's not a married couple, if the joint owner never took money out for themselves, she can, the daughter could take money out on behalf of the mom. But if the daughter never took money out on behalf of herself, the IRS does not consider it a completed gift. Mm-hmm. And it will be fully eligible for a 100% step up in basis. But if the daughter took some money out for herself, that is lost. Now, Pete always said you can, I don't know what he meant by argue to the IRS, but you could then prove and show that the mom put all the money in. But I don't, that's a very murky area. And I don't know if that counts because the IRS at that point is going to say it's a completed gift if the daughter takes anything out. I share this only. If your parent has named you on their accounts, and for a variety of reasons, we don't recommend this, but we do acknowledge it's easier than even sometimes dealing with a POA, although the grandma in this situation should have used a POA. Don't take any dollars out for yourself then you can definitely get the full step up in basis. So keep that in mind. Okay, so let's just again say we have a married couple. And I'll give you an example of this. Let's just say we have a married couple. We'll call them Jack and Jill. Now, Chris, your job on this is I actually put notes together because I have to give a lot of numbers. Your job is to make sure my numbers and my math is correct. I have been known to make mistakes in the past okay. when there's a lot of numbers flying around. Let me get my calculator. And you get, I think that I made real easy examples. Your brain is probably going to work just as good as your calculator. Okay. But I put this together today, and there's a lot going on in the office, as you know, and my brain isn't fully here at all times. So I think my numbers are right, but please proof them. So let's just say, folks, you understand step up and basis on a joint account. You have a Jack and you have a Jill. They are married. Okay? And let's say they bought one stock in it 20 years ago for $100,000. While they were married, they opened a joint account. Doesn't matter if the money came ultimately from Jack or Jill. Just $100,000 ends up in a joint account. They're married and they buy one stock to make this easy. We'll call it ABC Stock. And 20 years later, it's worth half a million. Back to my half a million example. Half a million. 400,000 again. 100,000 a basis. Jack kicks the bucket. He went up the hill to fetch it, but now he kicked it. So Jack is dead. What happens to Jill? How is this treated? Do you want me to answer it or do you want to answer it? I can answer this one. The... Half of the account gets stepped up at Jack's death. So the cost basis on that account goes up on half of it. Uh, Jill's portion, assumed to be 50% in this scenario, stays as is because she's still alive. 
Correct. So Jill said, here's what happens. Jill is assumed to have 50,000 of basis. Jack is assumed to have 50,000 of basis. Jill is assumed to have 200,000 of growth. Jack is assumed to have 200,000 of growth. Jack dies. His 200,000 of growth is essentially wiped out and becomes 100% basis. Add that to his 50,000 of original basis, 250,000 of basis. Jill's half still has 50,000 of basis. She adds that 50,000 to the 250, she comes to $300,000 of basis. The account is worth 500,000. So there is a $200,000 gain to Jill. Mm -hmm. The exact same situation she had the minute before Jack died. There was still 200,000 of gain assigned to her. Her original 50,000 of basis, half the 100, and half of the 400,000 of gain of 200,000. There's her gain right there, 200,000. Yep. Nothing has changed. She still has 200,000 of basis, folks. Fairly 200, straightforward. 200,000 of unrealized 200, gain. 200,000 of gain, mm -hmm. of gain, right. Sorry. Her basis is now 300,000. But she has the same 200000 of unrealized gain. Yep. Jack's gain is just wiped out. Now, there's nuances on how the stock is actually valued and if there's multiple shares. There's, there's a lot we're not getting into, if there's multiple lots, rather, uh, or multiple shares of different stocks. It, it, gets, it gets tricky when you're figuring all that out. But conceptually, folks, that's the step-up in basis rule. Fairly straightforward. Now, the, the one thing to, well, before I get into community property, let's look at it one step further. Let's just say we have Jack and Jill still. And now they each do this. They have three accounts. Jack owns one solely in his name. Jill owns one solely in her name. And they own one jointly. So follow this, folks. Let's just say each account had $100,000 put in 20 years ago when it bought ABC stock. Jack had $100,000 of basis. Jill has $100,000 of basis. And jointly, they have $100,000 of basis. And 20 years later, all three are now worth half a million dollars. Or Jack and Jill have $1.5 as a couple. So far, so good. Jack dies. What happens here? The account in Jack's name fully steps up to 500000 mm -hmm. The account in Jill's name doesn't change at all. And the joint account, just as we described. That's the step up in basis. It applies to the person who owns it. Why do I mention this? Community property states. There's those special states. Gosh, I think there's nine or 11. One of those two. It's an odd number because yeah. it's an odd concept. I know Washington is one. I know California is one. I know Texas is one. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, Who else? seven, eight, nine. There's nine. There's Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, 
New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. All right, I got three. I got three of the nine. I got a third because uh, I always remember California, Texas, and Washington. Uh, community property states are different, folks. And for those of you in community property states, you may be smiling, but remember, Wall Street giveth and Wall Street taketh away. Pay attention, community property people. I'll explain to non-community property states, which is the other 41, why community property state people are smiling using the same three account example. I'm also going to dumb this down. There's a lot of nuances to community property. We are assuming Jack and Jill were married in the community property state and started amassing their wealth after marriage. We would have to turn this into a four-part EDU series if we're going to cover community property, and I'd have to bring in a community property tax attorney to adequately explain all the nuances of community property. If you move from another state, if you acquired property before marriage, uh, if you remove property from community property registration, there's all sorts of nuances. Just look at this simple example. In the same thing I said, Jack and Jill, Jack opens, they're married in community property. So they're living in California or, or Texas or Washington or wherever. Jack puts a hundred or has a hundred thousand in his name in his very own account, grows to five hundred thousand twenty years later. Jill has property in her name in her own account, hundred thousand dollars, grows to five hundred thousand dollars twenty years later. And they have a joint account. They put a hundred thousand dollars in it, twenty years later it grows to five hundred thousand. Now Jack kicks the bucket. He went up, didn't even make it up the hill. He's having a heart attack trying to get up the hill. It's 20 years later, he's overweight, he's got diabetes. He didn't take care of his glucose level. He plops dead from, from a heart attack trying to get up the mountain. Do you, I'm not throwing you under the bus, Chris, but do you want to take a gander on what now Jill's taxable gain would be in that situation in those three accounts? Yeah, essentially the nuance, his individual account and her individual accounts. Well, let's take the joint account. Instead of being 50-50 in that joint account, the entire account gets a step up when one of the two owners passes away. So that's a nuance between the two of them. The um, individual accounts that they have, if they're in community property states, also get slightly different treatment, which now I'm confusing myself. So stop there. Yeah. Cause they don't get different treatment. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. of what I said, right. they lived in a community property state and they acquired it after marriage. After marriage. Yeah. Okay. It's before yeah. marriage. It's a nightmare. Yeah. So I'm keeping this simple folks. So it's that joint Believe account that really gets the difference. All three do. Believe it or not, in a community property state, when Jack dies, obviously his account gets a full step up in basis. So, boom, that stepped up. The joint account, full step yeah. up in basis. And Jill's account, full step up in basis. Right. If it's 100% community property, no ambiguity, no, no premarital asset, no removal from community property registration. You're in a community property state at the death of the first spouse, whether the asset 
was in his name, her name, or both names, all three accounts, full tax-free step-up in basis to $1.5 million in my example. Yeah, I was, that I is, was heading that direction, and, and my brain started um, It tricks double, most people because yeah. they want to think Jill's shouldn't get a step up in basis. Right. They can rationalize Jack's. They can even rationalize the joint account because Jack's in there. But Jill confuses them yep. because it's this. Community property states, folks, assume for married couples, irrespective of of who owns it, 100% is owned by that person and 100% is owned by the spouse. 200%. It's 200% owned. It's bizarre. It defies the laws of gravity. It just makes no sense. But that's what community property assumes. That's why when you're moving IRAs in a community property state, you got to get the signature on that transfer form of the spouse often. Because it's a community property state. The other spouse, even though the I and IRA stands for individual, it's being assumed also owned by the spouse who isn't even on it. So in this case, the full step up in basis for these community property people. And again, I get it. If you're an attorney listening to this, a state attorney or a tax attorney or a, a CPA or a member of a community property state, there's a lot of nuances here. For non-marital assets, inherited assets, is I get it. I'm just trying to keep this simple. Okay, so where does this come into play with a loss? Because it can hurt a community property person quite a bit with losses. But not only that, it gives wonderful tax planning opportunities for very sad situations. Someone is going to pass. But it gives wonderful tax planning opportunities if there's a power of attorney form in place and you can start gifting assets Mm -hmm. owned by a person who cannot make legal decisions for themselves anymore. And they're on their deathbed, either in a coma or they might have dementia or something where they can't make a legal decision. Because losses step down. Everybody concentrates on step up. And everybody envies community property people to get a double step up in basis. Uh, One at the death of the first spouse, giving the surviving spouse an opportunity to get out of a lot of taxable things tax-free. And then when that spouse dies later, another step up in basis by their beneficiaries. It's wonderful. But you got to pay attention to step down in basis. And a lot of people don't talk about the step down in basis. And that's what we want to get into here. So in order to understand the step down in basis, let's use the same example. Well, no, I can't use the same example. Um, I have to use a different example. So let's just say... Somebody buys something for half a million. Instead of putting a hundred thousand in, they buy it for half a million. And X number of years later, whether you want to say one year later, five years later, twenty years later, doesn't matter. X number of years later, it's worth a hundred thousand. 
Kind of the same example, Chris, just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Client put in 100 and it grew to five. What if you put in five and it dropped to 100 and they die? There will be a step down in basis. And in a community property state, it's automatic, even if it's in one of the spouse's names, as I already said. And a step down in basis might not be that good, especially if a non-spouse inherits it at times as well. And you're going to leave an asset that dropped. You paid half a million, it dropped to 100,000, you die. And you left it to your child. Now they inherit it. What happens there? It's important to know losses die with the person. So if you have unrealized loss carry forwards, or if you have in the year you died, you sold some assets and they dropped in value and then you, excuse me, you bought something, you sold it, it dropped in value, you had a realized loss, that is lost. The year a death sale is lost, carry forwards are lost, unrealized gains, excuse me, unrealized losses are lost. Losses are lost at your death. Don't forget that concept because step down in basis is not as tax favorable as a step up in basis is for your beneficiaries. It could actually cost your beneficiaries significantly more in taxes. And I'll go through and explain this. And the reason why I said having gifting abilities, if you become incapacitated, allows some date of, not date of death, but deathbed tax planning strategies. It's not going to help you. You're dying. But you Vanguard VGs, you spend your whole life trying to reduce taxes. Don't blow it at your death. You have to understand how step down and basis rules are going to work and what happens at your death. Now, one of the things that I confess I never knew until I watched Jeff Levine explain this. And he said he predicated when he was doing the presentation to to the people attending that we're going to get kickback from, he said, from his kind. Jeff Levine is a CPA. I think you would put him in the exceptionally smart Michael Kitsis level of CPA. Would you agree? Yeah, I greatly respect Jeff for sure. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff, I would not put Jeff in the category of a personal friend of mine, but he definitely is someone I know personally. And when we see each other, we acknowledge each other by name and chat and catch up because he was very involved in the Ed Slot program. So I met Jeff many, 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 many moons ago. He has since uh, evolved and, and does quite a few things. But he was given a presentation and he explained that you're going to get kickback from CPAs on the fact that at someone's death, even for a married couple, losses associated with that married person are lost for that individual, not for the couple, for the individual, even though the Schedule D 
has everything on it. And he said, most CPAs don't do that. And they continue to the surviving spouse with all the lost carry forwards. Even if the lost carry forwards were totally attributable to the living spouse. Yeah. To, to write. Mm-hmm. So he said, and I wrote this down and I never forgot it and I had to go back and get it. So he said, when you get kickback, and you will, when you get kickback on this, uh, gosh, where did I put it? He gave me the, it was a 1974 private letter ruling. That's how far back it goes. And I had it here. Okay. It's Revenue Ruling 1974-175. And in that one... So that's a Revenue Ruling, not a PLR. That applies to everyone. A Revenue Ruling applies to everybody. And you have to keep that in mind. So what he's trying to say, even though on a joint tax return, you kind of look at it and you think it's both of you combined. Well, it even says joint tax return. It's technically not. It is spouse A and spouse B, whether it's husband, husband, wife, wife, husband, wife, doesn't matter anymore. It is spouse one, spouse two, and your separate stuff rolled into one. And he said this gets incredibly complicated. Because on a joint tax return, you will have two Form 8606s, for instance, folks. If both you and your spouse make non-excuse me, make deductible contributions to an IRA, excuse me, let me rephrase that, non-deductible. If you and your spouse make non-deductible contributions, you're doing the mega, excuse me, not even the mega, you're doing the backdoor Roth strategy. Your spouse does it. You do it. You make a contribution to a non-deductible IRA. There are two 8606s filed on your tax return. One for you, one for your wife to document the basis, the non-deductible dollars going into that IRA. If both you and your wife are entrepreneurial and you each own your own businesses as a sole proprietorship, there's going to be a husband and a wife's Schedule C. But there's only one Schedule D tracking the capital losses. And it gets confused. Everybody thinks they share it. It's equal. Jeff is adamant. It's not. And he said, if you doubt him, Go to Revenue Ruling 1974-175. And I'll read just at the end of the private letter ruling. Thus, no part of such net operating losses or capital losses is deductible by the decedent's estate or carried over to subsequent years. When you die... Losses associated with you die. If you have a joint account, it's 50-50 owned. Do you see where this is going, Chris? Your losses are owned 50-50. Your gains are owned 50-50. When one dies, half of the loss carry forwards are supposed to be lost. Half the unrealized losses are lost. 
there is no carry forward. He has promised everybody you will get kickback. So if you're a CPA listening, just go to Revenue Ruling 1974-175 and learn for yourself. If not, reach out to Jeff Levine. You can get a hold of him probably on Twitter. You follow him on Twitter, right? I'm not on Twitter. Um, But anyways, I wanted to make that perfectly clear. This is important because it's why Jeff, and this is where I first started hearing about and following step down in basis and the importance of deathbed planning. Because until then, I never knew that the losses on the Schedule D totally attributable to the decedent spouse are lost and you can't keep carrying forward. That applies also to charitable loss carry, uh, deduction carry forwards lost at the date of death of one of the spouses, according to Jeff Levine. And I trust him immensely. So this is why some of this planning can be very important. So far, so good? Yeah, and I think as we're walking through all of these, kind of how some of this, uh, well, the step up and step down uh, factors play out, and you just mentioned the loss carry forwards as well, this is all tied into and kind of setting the stage for why having someone have the power to change uh, or manipulate or influence how all of this works at your passing is very valuable in cases where these elements exist for a person who's uh, maybe not going to be around a whole lot longer. Uh, Now, if if you're coherent and can make your own decisions, you can do some of this planning. If somehow you're diagnosed with something that's, you know, physically going to really cut short your life and you want to do these things, uh, you might do it yourself, but most of the time, if you're kind of rapidly heading towards the end, there's a certain point where you just aren't in that position. And unless if someone else doesn't have the power to pull off some of these changes for you, uh, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And your, and your estate and your beneficiaries will just have to, you know, bear the brunt of the re- the results of how these things work. Okay. So how do we benefit that? How do we maximize step up and minimize step down in basis? Well, in a community property state, they already got that solved on the step up at least. Mm-hmm. It can be a downside to community property states, the losses. But hopefully uh, assets continue to grow and there's not much yeah. in losses. Yeah, hopefully there's a lot more gains down. than losses at death. Yeah. Correct. So – People in non-community property states, the 41 other states out there, if you have assets in joint, it's going to be assumed owned 50-50, and there's only a 50% step up in basis. There's not a 100% step up in basis. Well, if one of you is going to pass, I mean, the easy thing is to say, just identify who's going to die first, have all the gain assets in their name, put all the loss assets in the name of the other spouse, because remember, losses are lost at your death, or losses die at your death, whichever way you want to put it. Don't believe me? 1974-175 revenue ruling. So how easy, how can it be done? Can you literally get all the gain in one spouse's name and all the losses in another? It's hard, yeah. but sometimes, sadly, like the gentleman who we answered on last week's Q&A show, Chris had a Social Security question to you. His wife is not doing well, short life expectancy. 
wondering about Social Security if she were to pass away. Theoretically speaking, that spouse could look there and if there's other assets involved here, not inside an IRA that are subject to a step up in basis. If they own them jointly, there's only they're in Nebraska. I don't think Nebraska was a step up in basis state, right? Or is it? Is it a community property state? No, and that um, that show wasn't last week's. So if people go looking for it, that's not where they're going to find it. So it's all good though. Oh, I, mem- I think they get the. I, mem- I think they get the point. Okay, I can't remember when we recorded the show. Anyways, because we're recording so many before Chris leaves. Back to what I was saying. That particular couple, they kind of know who may die first. So they could say, hey, we're going to put all the assets, rather than own them jointly, we're going to put all the assets that have appreciated in the wife's name. But I'm going to get all the assets that have have losses and get them into the husband's name to protect the losses because losses attributed to the person who died, die with them. So then in a perfect world, that's what you got to do. Many people can do that. You might not even need a power of attorney form to do that. As long as the person who's expected to pass away can still make legal decisions. Now, if they have Alzheimer's or dementia or something else where they can't make a legal decision and they're not expected to live more than two or three years, it's too late to do this. You can't get assets that are in their name. Um, out, you can't, at least the losses, because remember, you want to gift to them the the unembedded, excuse me, unrealized gains, but you can't get the losses out from them because they can't make a legal decision. But you could still get them the assets that are subject to a step-up in basis. But there's one key, and it's a gotcha, Uh, Some people call it the boomerang. If the person you give the assets to, in this case, the husband, make sure all the appreciated assets get into the ill wife's name, then it's assumed the ill wife, because they're in her name. It's not a community property state. This is a separate property state. 41 41 other states have separate property rules. It's now all in the wife's name she would theoretically name the husband as beneficiary. So at her death, there is a 100% step up in basis and the husband inherits it. But the boomerang rule, if you will, says, if the person who received the gifted assets dies within one year, that's 365 days, It doesn't go by calendar year. It doesn't, hey, I give it to on December 31st. On January 1st, I'm all set. No. One year. If they die within that first year and the asset goes back to the person who gave it to them, there's no step up in basis. Right. The entire account value passes over to the husband. No step up. This could be bad in the case of a joint account. I always thought when I I knew about this for a while, but I always thought, well, the joint account is assumed 50-50. So if they move the entire joint account, in this case, to the wife's name, half of it is his, and that's the gift. 
but half of it was hers and it's not a gift. So even if she died within the one year, there'd essentially be a 50% step up in basis. Hers would still get the step up in basis because it's not a gift. Jeff clarified, no, the boomerang rule would eliminate any step up in basis, even if the assets came from a joint account. So you got to be careful of that boomerang rule. So if someone is literally going to pass away within that year, you might not want to do it. If it's coming from a joint Joint, account. If it's coming from your account, you own it. The husband owns it outright in his name and it has a massive gain. What do you got to lose? Right. The boomerang just puts you back to where you were before. It puts you right back to where you were. That's exactly correct. There's no gain, no, nothing to lose in that case. You might as well gift it to the spouse who may pass away. If they live more than a year, your asset gets a 100% step up in basis. Now, I get it, community property people, you're smiling on this because you all don't have to worry about it. We get that. But for most people, they do have to do this type of planning. Now, a power of attorney form isn't going to help too much unless what if the husband has dementia? The wife is the one who's expected to die. The assets are still in the husband's name. The kids are trying to get some step up in basis here. Well, I would argue I don't think it matters because they're both going to pass away and eventually the kids will get the step up in basis. The double step up in basis really isn't going to help much in that situation. Okay, but what if we want to get money now that the spouse has that show losses? You don't want the spouse dying with the loss. And why is that? Step down in loss. What is a step down in loss? Best way to explain it, folks? Let's just give examples. Chris, I made these examples myself. Please proof my math. I'm starting to doubt me at the end of the day that I have the math correct. But you have to remember, this applies not necessarily between spouses, because spouses is very easy. Spouses do not get the double basis rule. So we're going to talk about non-spouses first and the double spaces rule. When a spouse gifts a asset to another spouse that has a loss, the original basis just carries over to the spouse. Mm-hmm. No harm, no foul. Real easy, real simple. It's if an asset is being left to a child. So go back to the example that we had. Now the, from the question, and the wife did die early. Now the husband is left as a widower. And now he's getting close to his passing. And he has brokerage accounts, some with amazing gains, which will get a step up in basis, but others with losses. He wasn't perfect on all his investment choices whether they were individual stocks, mutual funds, ETFs, or he was from Nebraska. Maybe it was 
farmland that dropped in value or some rental homes or just a home in general that dropped in value. I know you think homes don't drop, but some areas of the country, they certainly do. Or a business that lost in value. Whatever the case may be, if he has significant losses, he's going to want to try to get those out of his estate because of the step down. The, the, instead of the step up in basis, is a step down in basis at his death. So he is faced with two options. Die and leave something to my children. Or give it to him before I die. If he gives it to a non-spouse, the double basis of rule applies. What does that mean? Best is an example. And Chris, please correct me if, if my example is, is wrong. Let's just say he bought uh, one share of stock. We're going to make it stock real simple. And the stock was trading at $30. And he bought it, folks. And X number of weeks, days, years, months, it doesn't matter, go by, it's now trading at 10. Perfectly reasonable to mm -hmm. assume a two-thirds loss in the value of a stock. Very easy to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't buy one share. Maybe he put a million dollars in and he bought the shares at $30. Whatever the case is, he now has shares trading at 10. There's the loss. If he's doing some deathbed planning and he's sitting there thinking, okay, what do I do? Well, if I give my asset to my child and not a spouse, the double basis rule applies. And here's what it says. It says his original basis is 30. On the date of the gift, it was 10. If the child sells it for 10 exactly, it's a wash because the child's basis will be 10. If the child sells it at anything at 10 or below, the basis is 10. The original basis of 30 and the $20 loss is kind of lost, if you will. If he gifts a loss, the child's basis be, has to do with when the child sells it. And if the child sells it at the value of the date of gift or less, the basis is the value on the date of the gift. Now, if the child sells it between 10 and 30, well, before I get to that, Let's just say the child sells it above 30. The father bought it at 30. It dropped to 10. He gifts it to the child. Child holds it. And it rises back to 35. If it rises the above what the father originally paid, the father's original basis will apply to the son. So even though he got it at 10 and sold it at 35, there's not a $25 per share gain, folks. There's a $5 per share gain. Because if someone who's not the spouse receives a gift 
and sells it higher than what the original person paid after a loss. Receives a gift with a loss, but sells it higher than what the original person paid. The original basis applies. And as you can probably guess by now, the gray zone. If the child sells it above 10 and below 30, that gray zone, it's a wash. There's no gain, no loss. The child receives it tax-free. It's a wash. So that's if someone is alive. That's what happens. What happens if the father didn't gift in this situation? That he paid $30 a share for something, it dropped to 10 and he just left it as an inheritance. Now the child gets it as an inheritance. The step down in basis rule applies. The child's basis is 10 So what if the child died, inherited it at 10 and it continued to drop to 5 And the child is saying, wow, I'm watching my inheritance dwindle away. Dad really screwed up this investment. I think it's going to drop to zero. I'm going to sell. It's pretty much the same that would have happened to him if he received it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Either way, his basis is 10 If you received it as a gift, it's the date of gift value, and he's selling it for less than that. He uses the date of death, excuse me, the date of gift value as the basis. If he inherited it at 10, the date of death becomes the new basis. If they sell it at five in either scenario, same thing, correct, Chris? Yep. Now, let's go to the other one. Father paid it for 30. And let's just say there's a million dollars in there. He paid it for 30. It drops to 10. There's about 300,000 or so left in there. Because when I use numbers like 30 and 10, it doesn't sound like much. Put some zeros after this. So the father puts a million dollars in, drops to $300,000, dies. The child inherits it. But the father was not wrong in his purchase. He was just early. And the stock begins to recover and gets to, say, 35. And the child is like, wow, I've got... And by then, he's going to have more than a million. He'll probably have, what, a million... I can't even do the math in my head, but he'll have more than a million dollars. Well, five... How much would he have? I'm trying to think. Five, it depends how many shares he originally bought. I got to do the math in my head. But I'm coming with something like $50,000, or is that way too low? You, you change the numbers mid-story, so I well, think you should I, stick to the $10. Because the story still works fine with the $10, $30 example. Yeah, but I'm trying to just do this. Okay, at 30, Okay, he would have bought 33,000 shares, 33.333,000 shares at $30. And if there's a $5 gain, 166,000. Okay, yep. so now the son has $1,166,000. How did I come up with that, folks? I kept saying that what if they paid $30 a share? And I said he put a million dollars in. So he would have bought... Um, 
X number of shares and times $5, it comes to $166,666 of gain. So he has $1.16 million. But his taxable gain is from the date of death basis, $10, not the father's original basis of $30. So it's not just the $166,666 of gain that's taxable to him, which would have been the taxable gain if the father gifted it before he died. The gain is the difference between the $10 a share and the $30 a share. Does that make sense, Chris? The gains are between the $10 and the $35 a share. Yes, and the $35, I apologize. Which is about $834,000. Of gain of instead gain. of one hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollars a gain. So now you can start to see when I use. I should have just had. I should have had those numbers calculated ahead of time. When I use thirty and ten, they just don't seem to sit home. Yes, maybe the share of stock costs thirty, but maybe he put a million dollars in. So that means he bought sixteen thousand or so shares, and it starts to really add up. So now you can start to see if the father didn't die with the loss. He gifted the loss to the child. If the child sold it at any price below the date of gift or date of death value, it's a why. It's the same thing, whether you gift it or die with it. It's only if the asset begins to recuperate. And one would hope if you're still holding the asset, it's because you think it's going to recuperate, especially if you paid 30 and it dropped to 10. And if you leave it as an inheritance, the basis steps down, your original basis is wiped out. And as that stock recovers, your child is going to be hit with massive capital gains, depending on the size that we're talking. So that's the step down, and that's why I was saying if that father was incapacitated and couldn't make a legal decision, even if the son who's going to receive the inheritance had the power to gift and could gift to himself, if that's in the power, he should hopefully be sitting there thinking, holy moly, uh, I believe in this stock as well. If dad leaves it to me, my basis is 10. But I think this stock is worth 35, 40, 50. I do think this is going to come back. I got to get dad to give this to me as a gift while he is breathing. You might be saying, well, what about the boomerang rule? Boomerang rule only applies to a step up in basis, not a step down. There is no step up here. You're gifting a loss. So if the father could gift the loss over to the child, he could benefit from it. Does that make sense? Yep. Kind of a long story, but I think people can follow through that. Yeah. And that's why I said on the podcast, being able to gift in a power of attorney can be important, but you have to be very careful in that gifting power and who you're going to give it to. One thing real quickly before we wrap up, I do want to mention, 
in the example of the husband and wife, and I said the boomerang rule on a step-up-in basis, and the risk associated if you took it from a joint account is you just put the whole joint account in the spouse who's going to die's name, and they die within the year. It goes back. There's no step up at all. It just goes back to the the original spouse. And you lose even the 50% step up. A way around that is to simply name someone else, at least for the first year, to receive that, perhaps a child. So now the husband moves the entire joint account into the wife's name in our example. She names their son as beneficiary, at least for the first year. There's no boomerang rule now. None whatsoever. It's only if it goes back to the original person who gifted it. The husband is the one who gifted it, not the son. So the money could be inherited by the son with the full step up in basis. Now, if the husband needs those dollars, you have to rely on the son then turning around and gifting them to the father. The son will have their own $13 million gift tax exemption. So for only talking a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, it's not going to really impact the son much uh, with a $13 million lifetime exemption. But that is something to consider. You can name someone else for that first year, and then the boomerang rule won't apply. And then after a year, if the ill spouse is still alive, and we would hope if they are, they change the beneficiary back to the husband in this particular example. So that's one way around the boomerang rule. Okay, Um, I don't have time to really get into a section 2038 marital trust. Maybe someday we will talk about them. But they're a special trust that would give people in non-community property states an ability to get a 100% step up in basis at the death of the first spouse, irrespective of which one it is that dies first, without having to do any of these things that we talked about today. It's essentially going to be treated, it's not community property, but it'll get the same tax treatment. With several caveats, it should only be attempted by spouses who truly do love and trust each other. You have to trust your spouse because they could easily screw you. Um, But if you really trust your spouse, a Section 2038 marital trust would achieve a step up in basis irrespective of who dies first. So you're not going to have to do any guessing of of who's going to die first and changing uh, gifting and and making sure your POA has the power to do these things. Uh, You can bypass all that and spouses can get a 100% step up in basis irrespective of who dies first, even on um, assets in your name. It can be in the husband's name and the wife dies and the husband's assets get a 100% step up in basis, just like a community property state. Not Only would you inherit the wife's assets with a step up in basis, obviously. Your own assets would get a full step up in basis because of the unique language in a Section 2038 marital trust. Okay, I'll wrap up there. Okay, sounds good. 
So kind of a, a deep in the weeds uh, look here, but I think the, the overriding message we want to send with this is, you know, consider these types of gifting powers in a power of attorney so that in the time and the circumstances where these issues come up, someone has the ability to take advantage of these tax laws and tax rules essentially is the story. So something you have to get set up ahead of time because once you're incapacitated, you can't assign the power to someone else unless you've given it to them when you're legally able to do so. So just something to consider as you're building your financial POAs out there. And uh, thanks again for listening. Jim, you have a nice weekend and we'll be back with everybody else next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 